If you're able, would you remain standing for our scripture reading, returning to 1 Peter chapter 5. The first epistle of Peter, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. First Peter 5, starting at verse 1. This is the word of our Lord. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God with, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, by willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, by being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, have we pray that you would open our eyes to see uh, great things concerning you, concerning the gospel, and concerning us in this passage. And we pray to write it in the tablets of our hearts. For asking in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> our Lord Jesus Christ describes himself as being gentle and lowly. His ministry is described as lowering or humbling himself for others. And it's clear in the Bible that humility is a quality in which God delights. It is equally clear that God desires that His people be humble in His sight. God desires us to be a people who walk in humility, a people who are meek, who are gentle, who are lowly. It's interesting that um, when the scriptures were written, the New Testament scriptures were written, the Holy Spirit chose to use a word for humility, for meekness, for lowly, that in the secular world was a cuss word. To be humble in the sight of the world was to be somebody who didn't deserve any attention. Why would somebody desire to lower himself in the, in, on behalf of others? So to be humble, to be called humble in the first century world was to be cussed at. And yet the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to use exactly that word that was derided in the sight of the world to describe not only us, but to describe our Savior himself, who was derided by the world in every aspect. And we are to be like our Savior. We started to 2022 with four sermons on humility with the purpose of setting this year apart as the year in which we all grow in, in humility. 
In those four sermons, we considered that humility is dying more and more to self and to sin and living more and more for others and unto righteousness. Humility is living Galatians 2.20 out where Paul describes what should be the experience of every Christian when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Humility is embodied in the, in, in the day-to-day life as we live a, a, according to the John the Baptist principle. Christ must increase, I must decrease. Humility is really losing ourselves for the sake of the gospel. It's hard to believe that today marks the end, as far as Sundays goes, of the first quarter of 2022. Seems like it was just yesterday that we were at uh, uh, Isaac's and Kenzie's wedding celebrating their union. And now three months later, we are here, three months into the year. Uh, and so I thought it would be good for us to remind ourselves of the high calling that God has in our lives to be a humble people. It, you do it, it will do us good. To, remind, to be reminded to set this year apart as a year in which we all grow in humility. Especially by reminding ourselves that humility is for everyone. Because we might even think, yes, humility is great. So-and-so really needs to be humble. And yet the scriptures say that that's our calling, all of our calling. And this passage that we read here this morning helps us see that. It helps us see that humility is for everyone. In verses 1 through 4, we see that elders are to be humble. The leaders of the church are to be humble. We see in verse 5, the first half of verse 5, that younger people are to be humble. And we see in the second part of verse 5 that everyone else is to be humble. To be humble. It's interesting that Peter doesn't leave any space for anybody to think that they are not to walk in humility before the Lord, from the leadership to everybody else in the church. So what does humility look like according to this passage? Well, let's walk our way through each one of these groups and see how humility looks like in each one of these groups, because they are not necessarily particular to these groups. Some of these things, some of these principles, we can extrapolate to apply to the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does humility look like in the elders as they operate as the officers of the church? Well, they lead in a humble way and in examples of the flock. And look at how Peter describes that way, describes the way they are to perform their duties as elders. In verse 2, describes it as a serving, as something they do willingly, not for dishonest gain. These are all aspects of humility in the office of the elder. In verse 3, it says that they do that by not lording it over the people that they are shepherding. It also says that they do, they lead by being examples to them. And in verse 4, it says that they, they execute the office of an elder. They hold the office of an elder, not for glory now. 
not seeking their own gain in verse 4, because they're looking for the reward, the glory that is going to be given to them at the resurrection when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. In verse 5, Peter says, Likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Now, a couple things need to be said about these two words, younger people and elders. First, the word translated elders in this verse is the exact same one as in verse 1. In verse 1, Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort. And then he uses again that word in verse 5. In verse 1, the word elders clearly refers to those who rule over the church. It's not just old people or older people. It's those that are holding a particular office in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is very unlikely that Peter is using the same word here in verse 5, so close in the same context, to mean something else other than the elders of the church. Uh, if you have an NIV, you're going to see that they, the NIV translators suggest that that's the case, that somehow in just a space of four verses in the same context that Peter changes completely the use of the word, and now he just means old people, not the leaders of the church. Uh, the context doesn't, um, doesn't allow for that. So Paul, Peter is saying, young people, submit to those who have authority over you in the church. If you wanted to demonstrate, if you wanted to, to show that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you wanted to show that the Spirit of God is working you, and you're a humble person, you submit to the authorities, of, of, to those who have authority over you in the church. Now, that begs the question, who are these younger people of verse 5? Now, the word translated younger people is masculine, because in the, in the original language of the New Testament, you have masculine words, feminine words, and neuter words. And, and I know it's hard for English-speaking people to understand that concept. And most languages in the world have that concept. And it helps us figure out how they work in, in grammar. So this is a masculine word, younger people. And um, it could be a reference to the younger man in the church. If that's the case, then Peter may be saying that younger men naturally have a more difficult time submitting to other people. And that's why the exhortation is here. It could also be that Peter heard reports from the church that the younger men were struggling in submitting to the um, leaders of the church, the rebellion against the church. Wayne, Wayne Grudem, you may have heard the name, is a, is a very uh, well-known theologian and New Testament scholar. He wrote a commentary on 1 Peter, and he thinks that's what this word means, just the younger man in the church. He says, if those who are likely to be most independent-minded and, and even at times rebellious against the church, he's describing the younger men, Gruden is, uh, against church leaders are commanded to be subject to the elders, then it follows that certainly everyone else must be subject to the elders as well. And Gruden's point is that if the younger man is to be subject to the elder, and they're the ones that have the hardest time doing that, then it means that everybody else too should be submissive to the elders. On the other hand, however, the masculine plural words often refer to the totality of group, of the group, regardless of gender. So if I was going to talk about all of us who are here in Greek, 
I would use a masculine word because the collective tends to be masculine. And I think that's how Peter's using the word here. He is addressing all the younger people of the church who may be naturally more independent-minded and less likely to submit to the leadership of the church. So one way that humility in younger people manifests itself is in submission to the elders of the church. And I may be proven a fool, but I think our younger people do a great job in this matter here at this, at this church. Now, having said that, that the younger people here are called to submission to the elders of the church, I think it's important that we realize that humility displayed by subjection to authority, including the elders of the church, is not unique to the younger people. In Titus chapter 3, Paul is instructing this pastor who is pastoring several churches in the island of Crete. And he tells Titus this, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. The whole church says you be subject, subject, submissive to the authorities that God has placed in your life. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, again referring to the whole church, the Holy Spirit instructs us and says, Obey those who rule over you. And be, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. It's interesting that uh, the Holy Spirit knows how all of us work. And uh, he makes sure that we understand that there is actually a benefit to us if we submit to the authority, the ecclesiastical authority, the church authorities have given, given to us. He says that it... It would be unprofitable for you if you didn't do so. Why am I saying that? I'm saying this, well, because the Bible says, but also because trying to live a life of independence from authority is a sign of pride. Humility and unwillingness to submit to the authorities ordained by God, both in the church and the state, cannot exist. You cannot be humble and unsubmissive to authority. Those two things are either one or the other. And that's why sin is always a display of pride, because it is always unsubmissiveness to God's authority. One cannot be a humble Christian and not place himself or herself under the authority of a local church. That doesn't exist. And this is even true of the elders of the church. We, too, submit to one another as elders of the church. Not everything we decide is unanimous. And I've never seen one of our elders then say, well, that's not what I voted for, therefore I'm not going to support it or do it. We submit ourselves to the other elders of the presbytery. We submit ourselves to the elders of the entire denomination. So this is true of all of us. People of God, it is impossible to live an independent life. You can try. But it's impossible to live an independent life from being under the authority unless you do this. If you want to live an independent life, you do this. It's simple. You leave this reality, okay, 
leave the reality in which God exists, find a reality in the multiverse, supposedly, or perhaps even the metaverse, where God doesn't exist, and you are the only person. The moment you have two people, there's a dynamic of authority there. I hope you see that all this. I'm just being sarcastic and saying that it's impossible to live independently from authority in our lives. But Peter doesn't stop with the younger people. Look at the second half of verse 5. So he starts by saying, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Peter uses the exact same word to describe our relationship to one another. Submission. Everyone is to be submissive. Humility includes submission to one another, which, is, which includes dependence on one another. Uh, the American spirit of independence may lead us to believe that independence is always a virtue. But that's not necessarily the case. The reality is that we were made to live interdependently. We are made to live interdependent on one another. And only the proud does not recognize that. Only the proud does not recognize that he or she needs others in his or her life. As a matter of fact, Paul describes a Christian who is filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.21 as one who is submitting to one another in the fear of God. So a sign that you're filled with the Spirit is that you're willing to submit to one another. Humble, brotherly love is partly described as mutual, mutual submission. In, in Romans 12, verse 9, Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, and then he spends the rest of the chapter describing what that love without hypocrisy looks like. And one way he describes it in verse 10, in this way, be kindly affectionate to one another with brother-loving love, giving preference to one another. That's the idea of mutual submission. So you can see that every group in the church is described, is, is, is prescribed submission. The elders, the younger people, everyone is to be characterized by submission, by humility, I should say, that's displayed in submission. Now, how is humility attained according to this passage? See that in verses 5 through 7. And as we do that, it is important to keep in mind that Peter is writing to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. If you just flip to chapter 1 for a minute and look at verses 3 through 5, they describe to whom Peter is writing. This is the context in which we need to interpret verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. And in, in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to any inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So to whom is Peter writing? To those who have been born again. To whom does Peter tell pursue humility? To those who have been born again. So when we talk about attaining humility we're not talking about pulling ourselves by our own bootstraps to accomplish something on our own. 
We are talking about relying on the grace of God and the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ in order to grow in righteousness. At the same time, that relying on the grace of God and the Spirit of Christ looks like work on our part. We make effort in growing in humility. So by God's grace, we work at growing in humility. And this passage tells us several things about how we attain humility. It's interesting that some of the way that it describes the humble are also the ways in which we attain humility. For example, we attain humility not by being mutually submissive to one another, as it says in verse 5. Peter says, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Mutual sub- submission is not only a display of humility, but also a way through which we grow in humility. Submitting to one another acknowledges that we need each other, that we are not self-sufficient. Submitting to one another breaks down the uh, proud thought that says that we don't sin or that we have conquered all our sins. Oh, that, or the proud thought that says people think I don't sin. Now we try to hide our sins, we try to be independent from one another so that people don't find out that we sin. Guess what? I guarantee you there's nobody here who thinks you don't sin. So the cat is out of the bag on that one, right? Same way that there's nobody here who thinks that I don't sin or that our elders don't sin. The cat is long out of the bag, so we don't have to pretend that that is the case. As a matter of fact, we need to not pretend if we want to grow in the Lord. For the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit through the author of Hebrews tells us that there are sinful blind spots in our lives. And if we don't allow people in, if we don't submit to them, we are going to miss the boat. We're going to miss the resurrection. Uh, the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews three twelve and 13, Be aware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God... But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You and I have sin in our life that we're not aware. And sin is always deceitful. And we need to submit to people in our lives so that they can help us see that. When? Today. What does that mean? What happens when tomorrow comes? It becomes what? Today. And then when the two days from today arrive, what is that going to be? Today. So it's a constant presence. We need people constantly in our lives helping us see the blindness to sin. Another way to grow in humility is to clothe yourself with it. In verse 5 again, Peter says, And be clothed with humility. And Peter here uses a unique word. Paul likes this idea of clothing. In Ephesians 4, he speaks of the putting off and putting on. And he uses the general word for taking clothes off and putting clothes on. This, what Peter does here is different than that. He uses a unique word to be clothed, for, to, uh, for be clothed here, that refers not to anybody putting clothes on, but refers to a slave putting on his, his or her apron to get ready to serve others. That's what this idea, this idea of being clothed here means when we, we are clothed in humility. And perhaps Peter has in mind that scene in the upper room, 
in which Jesus Christ himself dressed himself as a slave and served the disciples by washing their feet. Closing yourself with humility means that you are preparing yourself to serve others regardless of how menial the task of serving may be. So we grow in humility by serving others. As a, as a slave, not as a condescending person, but as a slave who comes to serve a master. One last way that this passage instructs us on how we can grow in humility is by throwing ourselves upon the Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The word casting in verse 7 describes the act of humbling ourselves in verse 6. 6 says, humble yourself. How? By casting yourself upon the Lord. And this word is only used twice in the New Testament. Here and in Luke 19.35 when it describes the apostles, the disciples throwing their clothes upon the donkeys that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. Greek lexicons define it as to... Throw or hurl something upon something else. So get the picture, right? Peter saying, hurl yourself upon Christ. And it is a decisive action on our part, by the way, it's written, not a process. You just don't slowly, it's not like you're walking uh, into a pool in which, you know, you first they'll get your toes in and then up to your ankles. No, it's like jump into the deep end right away. That's the idea. Throw yourself, hurry yourself all at once upon Christ. Edwin Blum, a commentator on First Peter, says, The casting entails an act of the will and would be done prayerfully and in obedience to Jesus' teaching about anxiety in Matthew 6, 25-34. Remember what Jesus teaches there? Is the one that says, look at the lily of the field, how beautiful they are. Look at the grass and how, how, how God provides for them. And yet you're such, a more, such more value than the grass of the field or the lilies. God is going to provide for you. All the evidence of creation is that God takes care of his own. It's based on that that we throw ourselves upon the Lord. So the, the Christian is to hurl all his or her anxieties and cares upon God. These are our cares, our worries, our concerns, our anxieties about life in this world. This is how the word is used throughout the New Testament. Matthew 13, 22, speaking about the parable of the sower and the soils, uh, Jesus says, Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So what does Peter tell us? Grab the cares of this world and toss it upon Jesus. In Luke 20, 12, 25, Jesus again says, And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So if you try really hard, holding on to your anxieties, can you grow 18 inches? That's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the picture that Jesus is drawing here. And he says, okay, you grab those worries. That's the same word here in, in 1 Peter 5. And you throw upon Jesus. You hurl it at Jesus. Same thing in Luke 21, 34, where Jesus used the same word um, 
to talk about the cares of this life. It's interesting that we often find, we think that the anxious and the worry is the humble one. Is one who only the only the, the ones who lacks in confidence is anxious and worry. Yet the worries and the anxieties in our lives are more often than not a reflection of a heart who thinks it can control tomorrow instead of God doing that. Anxiety, more often than not, is thinking that God may get tomorrow wrong. And that somehow, if we think hard about it, if we worry hard, worry hard about it, we can make it right. Because we can't trust that God is going to get that. Is that the humble position? No, that's the proud position. The proud position is the, the, the position that thinks that even though God may get it right, wrong, I'm going to get it right if I really worry about it. And notice that we are exhorted to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In verse 6, Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's important that we realize that what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 5, 1-7 is in the context of afflictions and persecutions. You can read verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4. You see that, especially verse 17, where Peter says that judgment and afflictions began in the house of God. The mighty hand of God can be talking about that as the affliction, as submitting ourselves under the hand of God as bringing judgment upon us. But the mighty hand of God also stands for the redemption that God brings. That's how it's used in the whole book of Deuteronomy. And both are represented here in our passage. God's purifying judgment upon His people and God's powerful redemption of His people. And we humble ourselves under those two things. We humble ourselves by accepting whatever comes from the hand of our God. And this is important to keep in mind, especially in times of affliction, because we are more likely to forget that God cares for us in times of affliction. And we're more likely to forget that His calling in our lives continues to be true and good, and we are to continue to do the things He calls us to, to do that, so to do. So we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and that apply to all times, but especially in times of afflictions. Isn't that in times of afflictions that we're more likely to want to take matters into our own hands instead of submitting to the Lord, humbling ourselves before the Lord? And then Peter gives us a great motivation to throw ourselves upon the Lord. Why is it that you should do that? Why should you trust that God is going to receive your deepest concerns and do something about it? The end of verse 7 says, For He cares for us. God truly cares for his people. Remember what he says in Matthew 10? He says, look, two sparrows, the cheapest birds you can get at the market, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your heavenly Father. And you are so much more precious than a sparrow. If he provides and takes care of the sparrow, won't he care for you as well? Jesus cares for you as well. Remember his image as the good shepherd in John 10? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The hireling don't, won't do that. The hireling, when the danger comes, he'll run away. But the shepherd will die for his sheep. John Calvin says, 
As soon as we are convinced that God cares for us, our minds are easily led to patience and humility. So why is it that we can hurl all our anxieties and worries upon God? Because He cares for us. And how do you know that? Jesus died on the cross for you. And if He is willing to give you His Son, the most precious thing ever, what is it He's going to keep from you? Now, some people might still struggle with this idea, might resist the idea of humility. They might say, if... if, if if I'm thinking of others first, if I'm serving others first, who will take care of me? God will. And he can do a better job than you can. Now, question 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes well what it means to believe that God cares for us. Question 26 asks this, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty created in heaven and earth? The answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by the eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because Christ the Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt He will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity He sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because He is the Almighty God and desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. That's why we can trust Him. There's a great warning, too, in verse 6 for the lack of humility. In verse 5, sorry. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There are serious consequences that comes from the lack of humility. The worst of which is being the worst of which is God's displeasure upon us. Now, Peter here quotes Proverbs 3.34 from the Septuagint, the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament, to make his point. And the the English word resist in our translation does not do justice to the actual word that Peter uses. It literally means to oppose someone. God opposes them. God goes to the range in battle against someone. He includes hostility towards someone. Peter is saying that God is hostile and is waging battle against those who refuse to humble themselves under his mighty hand. The proud. The proud is the haughty or the arrogant, the one who thinks of himself as more important than everyone else, the one who trusts himself and will not place himself under authority. The proud is really the unbeliever. So a Christian who is proud is really thinking and behaving like an unbeliever, and God is at war with him. To be proud is to be at war with God. And God never loses. God is never engaged in the battle, in a war, in which he's lost. But there's great reward in humility as well. Look at verse 5. But God gives grace to the humble. So grace, God's infinite and marvelous grace, is given to those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Grace that we so desperately need. Grace that will cause us to grow in Jesus Christ. Grace that will enable us to die more and more to ourselves. Grace that will... Bring us closer to God, because God says, go on in Isaiah 57, the one who lives high and lifted up, lofty above all the heavens of heavens, dwells with the one who has a broken and contrite spirit, the one who is humble. And there's another reward, and that is exaltation. In verse 6, 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. God lifts up those who lower themselves before Him. Do that to Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 9, after that great passage about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name, a a name under whom every knee on earth will bow. And he will do that for us as well. He exalts us in the Son, his people exalted with his Son. It's true in this life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will do what? Direct your path is the traditional one, but the, the word actually means make your path smooth. Is the same word used for Isaiah where John the Baptist says that the, the, the king is coming and it was supposed to make the valleys high and the mountains low so the path is straight, is plain, is smooth. So it's true of this life, it exalts us, but it's also certainly true in the life to come, where we'll be glorified in Him. As we enter the second quarter of 2022, let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that He cares for us as demonstrated in His giving of His Son for us. Let us cast aside aside pride and cast ourselves upon the God who exalts the humble. And we do that by turning our eyes upon Jesus. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that the words that were proclaimed here this morning from this desk would penetrate deeply into all of our hearts, that we might grow in humility. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.